When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science Science and superstition. superstition. You've entered the The fifth dimension. dimension. The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of The Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to The Fifth Dimension. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. You can always subscribe to the series uh, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, like iTunes and Apple Podcasts, as well as YouTube and Spotify. Put out interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at Consequence of Sound. I'm Kyle Meredith. It's another special episode for a lost friend. Uh, May is Mental Health Month, as you may have heard. And while it's always been very important, it seems to be even more so in the conversation uh, lately. And that's a good thing. More people are hearing about it. It's also unfortunately more in the conversation because we've lost some uh, some great artists and some of those are friends in the past few years, artists that have meant the world to me personally. Uh, last week, I ran an interview with uh, my friend, the late Scott Hutchinson of Frightened Rabbits, who died by suicide uh, just last year. Similarly, an artist who I really account for changing my life, and I'll get to that story in a moment, but uh, talking about Chris Cornell. Also died by suicide on May 18th, 2017. This is the uh, the second year anniversary uh, of Chris leaving us. And so much like the episode with Scott, uh, I wanted to compile a couple of the interviews that I'd done with Chris. One, to keep the conversation of mental health going as a way that I can contribute to that conversation. Uh, and also to celebrate uh, the life and the music of one of the greatest musicians of all time. However they leave us, whenever they go, it's important that we remember them and, and we celebrate them when we can. And and so all of that's going into this episode with two interviews that I recorded with Chris Cornell. Uh, one from December 8th, 2011 on the Songbook Tour and another one on October 27, 2015 on the Higher Truth Tour. Now, for me, Chris Cornell is probably more important in my life than any other artist because of of how his music affected me. I grew up in a very small rural town in Kentucky, Litchfield, Kentucky. One high school, one middle school, and no rock stations. We had top 40 stations and lots of country stations. And that's what that's what was offered to me, and some oldie stations as well. Thank goodness for those. We did have MTV, but it, it, some reason that hadn't really penetrated into my consciousness at that point in, in that way. So, so I was just raised on a steady diet of what Top Forty and Country Radio had given to me. And then one day in eighth grade, a friend of mine named Kim came up behind me and, and just without saying anything, put a pair of headphones over my ears and said, "You have to hear this." 
and it was Soundgarden. It was a super unknown record, and it was a song called Spoon Man, and it changed my life in that moment. Everything about where I am today and where I am right now is because of that song and that album, and I rushed out to buy it at the local Walmarts in Litchfield, and I didn't stop playing it for months, and it scared me. It scared me because the music was dark, and it was heavy, and the artwork seemed almost demonic, and I, and I thought, maybe I'm doing something wrong, which made it really, really exciting. The music was so powerful. I mean, when that guitar part starts with Black Hole Sun, that is everything right there. And then you fast forward to when I went to college, and I went to college, I went to, I went to college for basically a semester at Eastern Kentucky University, and while I was there in 1999, uh, Chris Cornell put out his first solo record, Euphoria Morning, and there was a college TV network called Channel One. It's where Anderson Cooper got his start. And, but I remember that they would uh, they would play music videos in between news segments, and and Can't Change Me was one of the ones they had in rotation at that point. And of course, I was already such a big fan, and and so here I am in this new phase in my life, and once again, it's Chris Cornell that is soundtracking that. And, and I could go on and go on and go on and tell a story for every single Chris Cornell-associated record that he put out through the entire time. But it's all to say how much I admire and appreciate and, and would like to honor uh, this artist, again, in one of the only ways that I can right here. So it's a very long intro, and, and now we're going to get into it. So this is a two-part. The first one, again, December 8th, 2011, Chris Cornell was right here in Louisville, Kentucky, playing at the Brown Theater. He was on the Songbook Tour, and we talked about what that had been like, you know, this acoustic tour that was gone. We talked about Soundgarden and his thoughts on the band eventually getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which... <clears throat> needs to still happen. Uh, he told me some Temple of the Dog stories, and we even talked about his first solo show that he could remember, which is really interesting. I'd never heard that story before. Uh, Chris's first solo show that happened pre-Soundgarden. So that's what we're going to get this in on. Part one of Kyle Meredith with Chris Cornell. Backstage, Chris Cornell. Sir, how are you? Good, how are you? Well, you just uh, you came in, you've been on tour, the solo acoustic tour the whole time. How's it been going this time around? It's been really good. It's been great, yeah. It's actually been going on a while now. One tour just kind of blends into another. So I did the first one and then toured with Soundgarden uh, in the summer for a while and then kind of went straight back to this, went to Australia and then South America and, and uh, doing this uh, acoustic tour, you know, kind of finishing up the U.S. The first one it was 25 shows. That's actually not very many when in the U.S. You know, there's a lot of places to go. Yeah, well, I guess you've been used to, especially with the Soundgarden days. I mean, you guys would do what seventy dates? Yeah, like per record, we could do that many in in the U.S. alone, easy. Yeah, that's got to be nuts. I mean, that that's a long time, and of course, you've been conditioned. You've been at this a little while now, but it seemed like a whole, really long time then. Now it's just sort of it's my life, kind of. You know, you're coming up on a big birthday here in a few years. Which one? This is, you're coming up on the fiftieth birthday. Yeah, that that's far away though. I think. Yeah. yeah, it could be far away. But but as you get as you get into to this, I mean, um, being I mean, rock and roll has proved itself now, uh, definitely. But but being a guy who's in the forties, you're going to hit fifties, and you're you're still the big rock guy. I mean, how how do you see that uh, that position? I don't know. I mean, I think it's easier to see from a distance. Easier if, if you're looking at somebody else, and, and you have a sort of place in your mind where you can put everything, and. For me, to I have never been very good at including myself in that perspective, so I, I don't really bother trying. So age is never a factor. No, it doesn't really. See it. it doesn't make sense to me. I, um, I just sort of, 
I participate without really making much of an attempt at figuring out how I fit. Um, because it, it, it's really difficult to have a perspective on it. Um, and, you know, there's lots of different examples of how other people feel about individuals and music and, and what their contributions mean. And um, time is kind of the, the, usually the, the yardstick that I go by. So uh, the one conviction I have is that I'm lucky and, uh, you know, the, the bands that I've worked with over the years, uh, we're, we're all lucky because our music has seemed to last this far. And that's good. Other than that, you know, uh, as to what it really means or uh, rock music in general or pop culture or, or uh, you know, any kind of culture, I think it, the meaning changes depending on when you're asking the questions. It's interesting that you said uh, you talk about the contributions and what it means to rock. Uh, it's been a, a debate with me and my friends about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Some people are so against it, they just think it's, uh, it's unneeded. Uh, you guys seem like it's going to be, you know, there, one day you're going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, Soundgarden has contributed to that. Do, do you have an opinion? Well, I don't know. It's, people, the people that I know in music that, that get excited about it are almost always also critical of, of it in some way or another. And, the, and it gets a little bit confusing. For me, it's kind of simple in that it, it, it seems like something that has normally been associated with sports. And there's a lot of musicians that are sports fans, and, and they can kind of relate to it that way. I don't really relate to it that way, but also I think if it were a process that, that were more kind of open, as opposed to a panel or a jury that decides who gets included, then maybe I would be, uh, I would be less critical of it. But to me, that just rock music and a panel or jury deciding things about it and what it means and what, that doesn't make any sense. It's and so I've I've never really thought much of it. It's not very rock and roll, actually, when you put it that way, is it? It's not very rock and roll at all. But then you have these moments like um, the Tom Hanks produced Rock and Roll Hall of Fame HBO special, which was great, and that makes somebody like me feel happy that it's there because then an event like that can take place and you can see all these people coming up and performing music and for whatever reason there seem to be a lot of really amazing performances and that's something I can get behind because it's uh, something that's almost more fan driven and good for fans to be able to see and it's more celebratory and one of the complaints that everybody I know has had from the beginning of, of uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that the uh, the ceremonies are sort of cheaply done and and unceremonious and and uh, i i've never seen one that was compelling or exciting or amazing or seemed celebratory or you know to had anything to do with the vitality that these different musicians came from or created but um you know one person took took great pains to explain to me that how it was all for the fans and that i should be excited about it because my fans will be happy to see me inducted, and that you can't argue with. If that's if that's what if it makes fans happy, then I think it's a good thing. You're uh, of course. I mean, everybody always likes to point out that iconic voice that you've been able to hold on to all these years, and it is. It's sounding, I think, uh, more amazing than maybe ever. How are you keeping it? Uh, do you have to keep it in shape, or is this just something you've been kind of blessed with? There's, there's, I guess, certain things you learn over time. That are probably different for everybody, like things you can do and not do, and timing, you know, and when you can do and not do those things, and how far can you really push it, 
and in what way. And then all of those rules kind of change as you get older because your vocal cords, which are, it's really like a, a fleshy disc with a slit down the middle that's about the size of a quarter. And they change as you get older. And so you have to kind of relearn. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a strange thing. And then through that, you sort of have to forget everything because really it's just an instrument that, that should be something that is kind of available to be used as an instrument to convey whatever you want to emotionally. And that's impossible to do if you're worried about what it can do in terms of scales and notes and timbre and whatever else. So the probably the best and most important thing I learned is not to try not to worry about it too much. So the, has there ever been that spot where you've thought back on a, a few of your older songs, um, Nothing to Say, Birth Ritual, and you went, man, I wish I hadn't written that so high. I've got to go out and do that. You know, there's, there's a couple songs that I... I lobbied to never have released just because I sang them so high because it sounded silly to me. And I think there was a period in my career where I did that just because there didn't seem to be a ceiling. You know, I just kept going higher and higher and higher. And at some point it reached a level where I, it just didn't sound like anything other than you know helium. It just seemed silly. And, and at that point I started backing off that. So I think through Soundgarden's last two records... And, and past that, uh, I started to kind of calm down on the range. And then I noticed, after, after doing that for like six or eight years or something, that I couldn't sing those songs as easily. But then getting back into singing some of the songs with a, with a higher range, it, I got all of that range back. It was, just, it was sort of how I got it in the first place, was just doing it. Right. Um, I wasn't born with a, with a high range. I mean, that's not... It's a little out of what would naturally be there for me, but I figured out how to do it. But I, I don't know that it's important. I think, in a sense, it's something that I was known, I became known for accidentally. It wasn't something that I wanted to be known for. And to me, it's what's always been the most important thing is, is it interesting in whatever range it's in? And uh, the, I think the other problem that it creates having the ability to have that range is... Uh, when it came to songwriting, and still even now, I, I, I spend a little more time focusing on what register I'm singing in now, but I used to never even think about it. I just had a, a melody idea for the song, and whatever key the song was in and started out in would just stay that way, and then if it was hard to sing, it was hard to sing. I think about that more now, mainly because it, it's, uh, I think the song is the most important thing, and being able to kind of connect with it emotionally is the most important thing in the song. And, and to just grab a melody in any register and, and sing it, you're, you're sort of a little bit at the mercy of whatever the key of the song started in. It's, it's interesting, of course, to hear you go back and talk about all these different stages of your career. Are you able to look back on that as a yearbook? I mean, when you look at this stuff, when you're singing certain songs, is, it still, is that still certain points of your life that you keep having to relive and relive and relive? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a time machine because I don't think of it as years gone by. Like if if, if I'm singing a song like Soundgarden, just spent a, a lot of time kind of relearning a large part of our catalog. So we were going back and listening to old recordings, and and I was physically playing, trying to play and sing the songs at the same time. And some of the guitar parts are really hard to sing over, you know, and and. Suddenly it was just like, you know, I remembered every little thought and, and emotion I had about it. The first time it was written and the first time I heard it and tried to sing and play it, it's all like right there. It's like it happened the day before, you know. And the good thing about that is that I have this sort of clear vision of what those thoughts and feelings and obstacles were and, 
and I can kind of continue to solve the puzzles and the problems that all, that came along with all of that. You know, always trying to evolve in terms of uh, where the song goes in the context of a live performance. So it is, I guess, is Soundgarden now your focus for 2012? Probably for a lot of it, yeah. We're trying to finish up an album and then, you know, we'll be touring to support it. Um, or the first thing that happens in, in my life in 2012 is is touring with Soundgarden in Australia. So. It's nice to get down there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was just there, but I can't wait to go back. And, um, and it's, I also want to play more shows with Soundgarden because, you know, for some reason, I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's because we were so eclectic. I still feel like there's some better version of me as the singer and guitar player, you know, that my contribution in that band, there's still some sort of better version of that as a, as a live musician and performer. Not so much performer in that, you know, I can think of something else to do as a performer, but just in terms of the music and and performing it and where it can go. I feel like there's something else I can bring to it that, that's better than I ever have. And the only way to do that is to actually get out there and really do it and find that, whatever it is. Yeah, I, and I guess I'd read in an interview, um, I made the Rolling Stone interview, where you guys were saying, like, uh, this is, we're picking up right where we left off, too. So, you know, as far as what people are looking forward to, you know, what, what, what's the record going to sound like, that whole thing? I mean, is that accurate? Yeah, in a sense. I mean, it, it, the, the problem is that when you say something like that, it can lead it can lead anybody to to believe what you're saying is it will sound like we sounded on our last album. But the thing is, we never really did that f- from one album to the next, even if two albums came out in one year. So when I think of what what the next logical step would be, or picking up where we left off, that type of perspective, it's it includes some type of musical evolution that it would have included anyway. And the only thing that's not completely in sync with it could have been a two-year break or a 15-year break is just that I think you know we all bring considerable amount of experience back into the studio and into songwriting and arranging. And I think there's less uh, a less sort of self-conscious perspective because we were a different band even in even in 1996. You know, we were a band that sort of existed within a world of other bands and that was kind of considered to be part of a genre in a sense that that was almost more geographically definable than musically definable but um and there was also that like you know the strong current sort of commercial rock marketplace that our record label considered us to be competitive players in and now we're at a different place where it's we're sort of in a genre of one and you know we don't we don't have competitors we we just are who we are and have been accepted as that and that kind of that, that changes a lot. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily adds a lot more confidence, but there's less distraction. Uh, it's got to be nice actually to see all the fans. I mean, it, it's not even the fans. I think the critics are going crazy. Like, wow, it's it's actually going to happen. This is happening. Yeah, they're just sitting there like they can't wait to listen to it and then try to sort of take it apart and put it back together and, and then decide what it's going to mean 10 years from now, now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and you're to a point in your career now, too, where you kind of, I don't know, it seems like you would get to have your cake and eat it, too. You can, be a, you can be a solo artist, you can be in a band, and you don't have to ever choose. I mean, you go back and forth. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that started out that way, in a sense. I started playing guitar and, and bass right around the time Soundgarden forms. And up till then, I was a drummer and 
I sang, but I had never actually sang in a band. I would just sing backups and stuff. And pretty much right, right away, songwriting became a focus. And it, it was never about actually being able to play an instrument well. It was about being able to use it to create music. And I started doing that a lot with Soundgarden and then simultaneously just on my own for fun. And um, that never stopped. So that was always there. So, you know, I did a few different things outside of Soundgarden. But I remember when Temple of the Dog came out, I had different people telling me, wow, we're, you know, we're really surprised that you could sing like that or, or, or write songs like that. And I always took it negatively. And, and I also always took it like, you know, I didn't understand why. Um, why would they not think that, that I was capable of something different than, than they'd already heard? And then a few years went by and I started to sort of understand it. Like, why would they? If they haven't heard it, then they, maybe they wouldn't know. But to me, I was always, everyone in my band always felt that, that I was capable of doing anything I wanted. And I, and I was always encouraged by everyone in my band, always. And, uh, but it just was, it was something that was more personal and not something, until Temple of the Dog, I suppose, that ever had a, a venue. Do you remember your, your first solo show? Well, I did a show with Matt and Matt Cameron and Scott Sunquist, who was, uh, was the drummer in Soundgarden between me and Matt, which was about a year. And it was an acoustic show, and I played a 12-string. And um, I think Matt played guitar, and, and I'm pretty sure, and Scott played percussion. And it was it was like an hour long or something acoustic show. I don't know why I played twelve string. It was really hard to play. And I think that it, in my mind was sort of my what I thought of as my first solo show. And it got one write up in like a local fanzine in Seattle, and they gave, gave it a positive review, which I didn't agree with it because I thought that I was awful. Um, <laughs> and then I didn't do it again. And then the first the first solo show um, it, for Euphoria Morning from our first solo album, I remember really well. It was in Boston. And uh, I wasn't planning on coming out and playing really anything f- except for music from that album. You know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't doing what I do now, you know. Starting all over. Yeah, it, completely. And it was a sold out show, and, and uh, there was like one guy who was seated and kind of rowdy near the front. And, you know, I could hear him kind of yelling and being rowdy, and, I, and, and he was clearly someone that was a hard rock fan and a Soundgarden fan. Mm-hmm. And, that was the guy I was worried about. You know, I just thought everyone else will, even if they don't like it, they'll tolerate it. But that this seems like a guy that's just going to have to be heard. You know, <laughs> and um, we came out, and he had a, he had this look of confusion for for it may have been a whole song. You know, it may have been like somewhere halfway between the second song. It might have been faster though. A, a look of confusion, and I think, and then the song ended, and somehow or another, he connected to it. And then he seemed so overjoyed that he could, you know, that even though it was different, he could get it. And he stood up and just started, like, pumping his fist in the air and yelling, fuck yeah, all right, yeah, right on, you know, that kind of thing. And that was the last time I really worried about it. Because I thought, like, you know, this is going to be, in anything that I do outside of a a band that had such a strong identity, some people are going to not like it as much. And other people are going to like what I do that didn't actually like that. And that's, that's actually happened a lot. And because I've experimented with so many different things, like the, the album Scream, has, there's fans of that album that, that aren't fans of anything else I've ever done, really. Such a different record. Yeah. 
And so it's, uh, I, I'd sort of accepted that pretty early. Also, after Temple of the Dog, I, I had such a great experience with it, and it was such an eye-opening experience about how amazingly rewarding um, a, a collaboration like that could be, a quick one where there's, you know, there's no uh, goal other than just enjoying playing music with people that you haven't played music with and, and see what comes of it you know and that and in that case there was no goal for anyone there was no goal for the record company they were just trying to s- get through it and move on and, um a&m records put out that album as it just sort of as a f- favor to me they didn't really put anything behind it they just wanted to get it out of the way until they heard it then it was different then, um but uh but it taught me to 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 be open to collaborations that would make sense and could be exciting, and that's that's why Audio Slave happened for me. Right. For my part, I felt like, well, you know, the, the, it just seemed to me in my mind, m- sort of mulling over what the possibilities could be that that it would be stupid to to not at least get in a room with those guys and see what happens. And then I was pretty confident that it would that something would come of it right away, and it did. Like. I don't know if it was 40 minutes or something, you know, we started playing music. I think we wrote a whole song and maybe started another one that could easily have been finished. And that was it. I just knew that we could, we could be great and we would make great records. Next stage of your life right there. I'll close uh, my, uh, my Chris Cornell wish list reissues eventually a DVD. Uh, Where's the, uh, you did, you were on PJ 20. Where's the, uh, the SG 30. Hopefully. I'm not, uh, I'm not that sure that that's important to me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I I watch not a lot of them. I watch some music documentaries, and some are really good. The two that I've seen that Scorsese did, I love, uh, and they're very very different than each other in terms of style. I felt like the, like the Pearl Jam documentary was really great. You know, but it's, it's also done by somebody that has experience in in um, in that from a teenager. But then there's like that the, that series behind the music where it just seemed formulaic, and I guess what I don't want is a documentary to come out that uh, that can be seen, and then anybody can feel like they've taken away a clear image or perspective of what Soundgarden is about and what we experienced. Because I don't think that's possible, and I don't want to limit any individual's imagination to or to be sort of erased and rewritten by this film that is difficult to really in that medium convey what it felt like or what maybe what it really was and we're so eclectic musically i almost would prefer that a large part of it remain a mystery or have at least not be demystified incorrectly Mm -hmm. which i feel probably is what would happen with the film it's just too literal. It's too. Uh, I probably mistakenly kept, tried to keep film cameras away from Soundgarden all the all the years that we were playing live, and the main reason why is because I didn't want to ever see it, because it would replace my memory of the experience, which was always, to me, pretty crazy and and ethereal and transcendent. And um, you know, my it's almost you know most of my memories of those shows are are like like memories you'd have of when you had a high fever or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably was an idiot to, to always try to kind of enforce that because it would be nice to have a lot of that footage now. And that would probably help c- create some type of a documentary that in the absence of could make it 
impossible. I don't know. Well, rock and roll has definitely lost the air of mystery, but uh, you guys have kept that one, and it's been really nice. Chris Cornell, thank you so much. Recorded December 8th, 2011 at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky on the Songbook Tour, Mr. Chris Cornell. Now we'll flash forward to 2015. In fact, specifically October 27th, 2015, the album Higher Truth had just came out, and he was playing at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Nashville's three hours down the road from Louisville, so me and my videographer, uh, Tyler Franklin, jumped in the car, headed down there to interview Chris Cornell backstage at the Ryman in the Johnny Cash room, No Pressure. So it's with that that the uh, the first part of the audio you hear here, uh, I'm so happy we, we, we captured this, is just us gabbing about setting up the equipment and, uh, and, and the time limit that we are imposed on right here. So part two of Kyle Meredith with Chris Cornell. It's a nice, comfortable talking situation. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have to move. <laughs> Usually the proximity is a bit closer, but it's like, all right, yeah, it's fine. It's backstage. Yeah, but you can be in my shot, too. They can see your profile. Oh, I'm the camera hog. I'm the interview <laughs> hog. Let's be honest. This interview is about me. It's, it's not about... Isn't it always? <laughs> we had a long discussion about that beforehand, and no, it's not. You did? Yeah. With who? With him. Uh-huh. We you guys talked about him. you. See what I'm saying? Yeah, it supports well, my third... Son of a bitch. I just, that's BS. That doesn't hold water, what I just said, but... Chris Cornell, <laughs> back with a new record called Higher Truth, and it's a fantastic record. Oh, uh, thank you. I think you're getting a lot of uh, applause and accolades from this one. Uh, yeah, it seems very well received. Yeah. Um, most importantly by fans and I that I kind of felt confident about you know the most of the way through you know I felt like it it was kind of born from the the songbook touring you know the solo acoustic touring mm-hmm. and wanting to feel like that became such a special thing for me uh and and being able to do all the other things I do especially Soundgarden and then be able to bifurcate the time between the two where it's two really completely opposite things has been really a blessing and it's it's uh you know there's no confusion mm-hmm. for me um creatively nor for my fans so i wanted to you know i wanted to make the songbook touring like a, a living thing as opposed to always to look back and and wrote this album really in support of that that nostalgia i know that can be tricky especially for an artist who's kind of mm-hmm. So associated with an era, you know, for better or worse. I, yeah. I know that's a tricky thing for the longevity of a career that you have to. I don't know. I guess you have to consciously ignore that, and you have to try to, you know, get. Past I think that. there's a yeah. I think there's um. I think there's a healthy way to do it, and then there's the sort of bully way to do it, which is which is you write a new album, and then you go out and you you tour and you refuse to play anything but that. Oh, right. And I think for me anyway, my my experience is that doing both is great you know i don't i i don't or at least i haven't up to now believed in the idea that when people buy a ticket to see you perform that you not give them at least a little of something that you know that they're going to want and and i know in the context of these solo acoustic tours because they're screaming it at me you know i can hear them (laughs) there's there are no amps to 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 like drown it out i'm sure it only gets comical if they start yelling ty cobb or something like well yeah i mean that happens every night they're yelling a song that's not going to happen all right ridiculous to yell for but i think that there's it's in 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 the spirit of something good and regardless of what i do even during my uh first songbook tours where i was playing songs from scream very supportive of everything that i played you know it didn't matter and on this tour definitely uh you know supportive of the new material and and 
happy to hear other material. So it's you know I feel like there's a there's a good balance that I strike and and there's no and and there's no predicting you know it's a once you is is you're sort of constantly infusing a tour with new material and you're sort of opening up the ears to it it, it is a living breathing thing and that living breathing thing is it can have a history that's right. fine i'm lucky that i have it you know so why are you doing a dual thing too right now because euphoria mornings got the re-release uh-huh. that hasn't happened yet i don't think uh, it did. It, it did it just like happen. A okay. week, two weeks ago. I'm so, were, how how like how on hand were you for that? Like, was this a thing where you had to listen to Euphoria Morning over again? And did that have any influence per se? Like having to concentrate on that era of your life as we're talking uh-huh. about nostalgia. No, the only thing it did, you know, for me was it. it I think I think there was an essence of convenience to it, where the record company looked at it as okay, we have this in our catalog, mm-hmm. and and Chris is putting out a new solo album and. Um, this is his first one and people love it and so we'll press it to vinyl because we never did before <laughs> just and, anything they can do yeah, yeah, yeah and I get it you know they've the, the it's an investment they made 15 years ago mm-hmm. so it's on those books from 15 years ago why not you sure. know and and people it's actually the one thing people will buy music for is to buy it on vinyl I'm guilty um, of it. I'm, yeah, I've went looking for it already. So. Yeah, so it, I understand, and it's and and it, and it also helped me because it's it's it sort of um, you know come back into discussions, particularly in chat rooms and and you know and viral stuff which I've seen, mm-hmm. and um, it also gave me the opportunity to kind of adjust a couple things that I had wanted to for years. But I, but I got to see kind of simultaneously with the reception of Higher Truth, I got to see a lot of people talking about how important that album was for them and i think that that all of that kind of positive energy is sort of elevated everything and and so you know i was happy with it i think it was a good thing for them to do yeah well on the subject of higher truth you know i've heard you talk about really wanting to make this a storytelling album Mm -hmm. and i've also heard you say and i couldn't figure out if you were being sarcastic or not that like half the record's about your wife I think all half of all my records. <laughs> well, I looked at that. My wife. At least you know everyone that I the if I look back and kind of it's a good two to four songs per. But but a solo album, she's yeah. gonna have half. And I think that that my kids make it in there too in the way that I think it's just sort of the natural course of songwriting when you know your your life really outside of your career is your family all the time. It's gonna it's gonna be what you're thinking about. You're bringing your family into your life more and more. I mean, I saw the video of your, you and your daughter up there. Are both your kids like wanting to be musicians? Are they on their way to being musicians? Um, both of them definitely dabble in different aspects of being musicians and be, being interested in music and appear to have sort of talent in a lot of different areas where yeah. it's almost kind of like, well, what, you know, whatever you decide you want to do, you can do. And, you know, the, my feeling is support them more in those areas where they where they want to do something. Have you um, turned into the uh, the old guy who's like, damn kids and your damn music? <laughs> no. <laughs> Whatever they're listening to, you know. You know, no. I actually, I recently watched this this uh, news report on CNN about parents and their teenagers with um, the internet and handheld devices and different ways of communicating through the internet and, and social media and that kind of stuff. And what was weird is most of the, all of these parents were younger than me. And a lot of them had no uh, knowledge of what their kids do and what music they listen to and, and, and like, w- what their social media is. 
And I felt like, well, I'm actually sort of all over that. I'm all over what they do, and I'm all over what they listen to, and we're all over sort of how they interact and what they say. And I feel like I'm kind of in step with them. And I haven't, I haven't really pointed them in any direction in terms of uh, what I think they should appreciate artistically, because I think that's a big mistake. Sure, that's because the that's rebellion's when, there. That's what yeah, they, so you're yeah, going to get right. the opposite. <laughs> like, um, mine's, mine's still young enough. Mine's eight, so he's like, you know, he, he's okay with me Yeah, kind of... I just, I just kind of you know, nudge it in there a little bit, you know. The only thing I ever did was when I heard, and I don't remember what it was, it was Pandora or Spotify or something. My son was listening to what sounded like ACDC songs from the other room, and I thought, I was listening to ACDC. He chose that, and I thought, that's great. And then I, and I thought, wait a minute, that's awful. And I went and I looked, and it wasn't because they, they didn't license it. Yeah. So it was like LA Guns or something. It was some just, LA rock band doing yeah, their right. whole catalog. And... So I had an iPod full of, you know, thousands of songs, and, and I just gave it to him. I said, Here you got to you got to listen to the right stuff. And but no, I and they, I think you know, they exposed me to things that I otherwise would not. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't come across my plate. It just wouldn't. And so I think there's a there's an exchange that happens. And I think that for me, at least, being a musician, I can connect to almost anything. But I'm still going to have that. Sure. I think I have that in the, in the context of analog music versus versus digital music and performing musicians versus people performing to track and sort of ghosting their own performance on stage and all that kind of stuff. I don't get it. It does that doesn't draw me in. I, if I don't hear sort of the humanity to a to a performance on an album. It just doesn't draw me in, yeah. you know, and, I, and it's not a decision that I've made as much as it is just it's something that happens or doesn't. So I, I have that, you know, I have that kind of nostalgic desire to want to hear analog recorded music and live performances in a studio where you where you feel it from beginning to end as one performance instead of uh, something that's been edited and, in, in a computer after the fact <laughs> which art. by the way I can yeah. hear that that screams at me yeah. those edits and how they're right. edited and you can hear that you know yeah some of us don't but, but I try not to get too hard on that either because like what was I listening to at that time that was so yeah. out of touch with yeah. you know a purist before me or something like that sure like, so I, yeah I'm the same way I try not to put them down too much I just don't listen to it myself well it doesn't <laughs> something, it's not something that it's attracted that's attracted me and and some like i remember really liking industrial music as as in my late teens and and early 20s and there was something about it it was a new kind of visceral music to me and the content was very aggressive and kind of scary and it was it it was uh it was exciting and i still think some of that music can be really exciting and i still think that a lot of electronic music can be exciting mm-hmm. but it's not going to beat something that i get an emotional connection with and right. i'm not going to get that without sort of just he- hearing what feels like a person in a room or people in a room. Sure. And I was about to say my only argument was you put a really great vocalist mm-hmm. on it, you know, who's really given her heart, his heart, whatever it is, and skirt that in on the electronics. Like, you can have some soul in there. I just... I think that that's missing. I think that everyone, like, people swallow the whole pill instead of just biting a piece of it off. When I was making... Uh, the the album with Timberland, mm-hmm. they I was in the studio and they were going through a, a hard drive of a bunch of stuff that he had done uh, that was just catalog stuff that had never been released and there were songs that that he was singing on and they hadn't they hadn't touched his vocals or edited it at all you know so so there it was just really raw and I thought that was some of the coolest sounding stuff I'd ever heard him yeah. do and I was telling them <laughs> use like, that that is what right. you got to put out and they're looking at me like I'm nuts. 
because uh, they're very much into a world of electronic post, you know, yeah. kind of has to do a certain thing. And I understand it, but yeah, it's a, it's different. It's a different world in, in some ways. I also think, though, that there's always scenes of purists, always. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can, you can find that. Whatever you really want is out there. You're going to be on the campaign trail this time? I've been interested in that, to kind of see if you're going to be doing that. You did, you know, with Obama the last couple of times, and I thought... Yeah, you know, there was this... Uh, it, it depends. It, it depends on what it feels like to me. I felt like with um, with Obama, the there was a certain amount of... Um, there's a certain amount of fear in regard to, like, uh, what, what would happen if he didn't win. You know, it felt almost like there's sure. a damage control scenario there, and I think I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, in a lot of ways, that's that's how my thinking works when it comes to politics and when it comes to elections it's like okay who's going to get nominated and then you know what what is the sort of the lesser of two evils in a way and I'm i sure think with obama it was now. very i think it was very clear mm-hmm. um, there was no confusion in regard to that and you know we'll see we'll see how how things play out now but to, yeah this is not something there's nobody that's inspiring me really it's pretty and, wacky out there. Yeah, I also in in sort of paying paying attention in the last eight years and really focusing on how how events have taken place. I feel like it's going to take a lot more than any particular administration yeah. to to make any real change. And I'm not sure, you know, other than barring some sort of breakdown in how this country is run, which is probably going to have to be a financial one that you're going to see any real effective change. I think it's this constant sort of push-me-pull-you scenario that just keeps living on, and and we keep sort of scotch-taping everything together, and at some point it isn't going to work. I just think it's people not are lazy. That's yeah. What, yeah. I think they are too. Yeah. Yeah. That's the unfortunate thing. Uh, I really, really do love Higher Truth. I know we didn't get to talk about it as much as I wanted to, but it's a beautiful record. You've uh, really exceeded past thank you. all the things. So thank you. Thank you very much. I put a lot into it. It took... Two and a half years or so to write, yeah. maybe a little more. You, you can know. tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did a lot in between then, but I think that that really helped. I think that uh, being being able to take a couple months away from it while I'd be on tour with Soundgarden or touring for myself or whatever I was mm-hmm. doing would allow me to come back with fresh ears. And it was something where I had to I had to kind of reinvent myself as a songwriter in a lot of ways to make the whole thing work. Well, we really so, appreciate it, man. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. And that one, uh, again, uh, recorded October 27, 2015, backstage at the Ryman Auditorium for the Higher Truth Tour. This is usually where I would thank the artist, and, and a huge thanks. The biggest thanks to Chris Cornell for the conversations, for the music, for, for everything. For everything. Right before Chris left us, he had just released a new single called The Promise. It was the, uh, it was the title track theme song to a movie of the same name. And he was uh, in Europe, and I would reached out to uh, our, our mutual contact to say, hey, I'd love to talk to Chris again about this because it seems like a, a project that's really important to, his, uh, to, to him. And Chris was up for doing it, but it was a, it was a scheduling kind of uh, thing that we were working around because he was in Europe. And, and so we kept having to put it off and put it off and put it off. And then he came back to the United States, and, uh, and it was in Detroit, of course, as we all know, uh, that he died. I didn't get to talk to him again, and that's sad. But it is so much sadder for other people, um, for his family, for the world of music uh, that we lost such a powerful, powerful artist. Again, May is Mental Health Month. If you're struggling, there are numbers. 
There are websites. There are people that want to help. There are people that want to listen. And if it's something that you're dealing with and you're listening to this, then I hope you reach out and, and that you find help. Because there's someone out there that feels about you like I do about my favorite artists, like Chris Cornell. And that is where we're going to wrap this one up. I'm going to go listen to some Soundgarden. I'm probably going to put on Spoonman, and then I'll just fall down that rabbit hole from here. That's what I do every single time. Whether or not I have the time, it's going to happen because that's what happens every single time. I hope you enjoyed the interviews. I, I hope you take the positive messages from this, the, the love that this man had for his family, and the love for, that this man had for his fans, the way he talks about him, as you heard. It's always so inspiring. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, that's where you can find this series. Consequence of Sound has your music and film news, WFPK.org, where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. And I'm on Twitter at Kyle Meredith, Facebook slash Kyle Meredith. That does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.